You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. We have a very special episode. Uh, We have two special guests with us. Today, uh, in studio, we have our chief scientist, Dr. Tom Morman, and joining us by phone from New York is Dr. Rocky Rockwell, researcher in vertebrate zoology and ornithology with the American Museum of Natural History. And Rocky is going to be joining us to talk about snow goose ecology and other interesting science-related things from La Perouse Bay uh, up in Churchill, uh, Manitoba. Rocky, thanks so much for joining us on the show. My pleasure. To start with, we want to give you an opportunity to tell us and tell our listeners a little about your background and your uh, your professional work. All righty. Well, I, uh, I wound up uh, doing most of my growing up in South Missouri in the Ozark Mountains on a sort of survival dairy farm, two dirt roads and three gravel roads away from the asphalt. And um, that's sort of where life started. And I spent as much time as I could with my sister outdoors fishing and hunting and a little bit of everything else after we got our chores done and went to school and that sort of stuff. And uh, at some stage I decided I wanted to try college. So I tried it. I went back to Ohio where my mom was living and uh, mom and dad were living. And I uh, went to Wright State University and I got inspired by an ecology professor who uh, sort of exposed me to a world where I could actually do science and also spend most of my life outdoors. And that appealed to me in the extreme. And after spending some time doing some, oh, some theoretical stuff using fruit flies and math and stuff like that, I, I ran into this guy, Fred Cook, 
and he invited me to help out with a snow goose project. I was doing some computer modeling work for him and a man named Marvin Seeger, and he <clears throat> took me to Churchill, and I got off the aircraft in 1969 and fell in love with the place and the people, and uh, I've been going back ever since. This coming year will be number 52 for me. I, I think I, I think I read that in an article somewhere that, that – uh, you had been going to that that colony for over fifty years. That's that's an incredible feat in itself. Yep, it's it's been a fun ride, and I'm looking forward to this coming summer. I'm not sure how many more I got in me, but uh, I'll keep going as long as I can, and as long as I can keep good students coming in, and as long as we can do good work. There's always plenty of work to do up there, and hopefully, we'll talk a little bit about that. Absolutely, you mentioned uh, you mentioned your students, and so you have uh, adjunct professor position at a couple of universities, right? Yeah, well, I'm actually on the faculty at City University in New York, I'm an ad, and I'm an adjunct at Columbia University. So plenty of things to keep you busy, and so we certainly thank you for sharing your time with us today. Uh, one of the – one just a side note, an observation that I uh, have been making as we're recording these episodes, we've had Ray Alisoskis on, we've had uh, – uh, Drew Fowler on, Mike Kasadza on, and some of these names of the legendary waterfowl ecologists kind of keep coming up. Dave Ankney, Fred Cook, Dennis Raveling. And so that's pretty cool in itself to be able to hear those names and see how their influence carries on through the generations. And it'll, it's going to continue as well. It's just like a big family of, of researchers. And some of the some of the folks that have become that have come before us are truly legendary and have uh, been responsible for, for some of the foundational elements uh, in our field. So that's that's just a neat observation in itself. Well, for me, two of the most pivotal ones for me were two guys from Canada, Graham Cooch, who was with the Canadian Wildlife Service for years and years and years. And the other one was Alexander Zubin, who was also with Canadian Wildlife Service. And I was very fortunate that both of them helped me out a lot. And after they retired from their positions with CWS, they still came up to La Perouse Bay quite often to help out with banding. And uh, it was always fun to have two of the grand old men of snow goose biology uh, entertain the students. And I mean entertain in every sense of the word. Rocky, we had, as I mentioned, we had Ray on a couple of episodes prior, and he gave us sort of a big picture overview of some of these long-term studies that are occurring uh, at snow goose col- colonies across the Arctic and subarctic. And of course, Ray's experience is primarily centered around Carrick Lake up in uh, the extreme far north uh, Arctic. Uh, your experience is most closely, as, and, uh, and maybe exclusively, you can fill us in on this, associated with the colony at La Perouse Bay, which is uh, near Churchill along the, the Hudson Bay. And that basically, you, you get to Churchill by traveling north to Winnipeg, and then you keep on going, right? It's, it's, uh, it, despite it being in the subarctic, it's still a long ways up there. Yeah, it's another two hours out of Winnipeg, and then once you get to Churchill, it's 45 minutes by helicopter or an hour and a half overland with one of the big wheeled machines that a friend of mine uses for polar bear tourism, and he'll sometimes use his service vehicle. We've got a legal road that we can take that, well, yeah, it's a road as as long as you've got a machine that's got 12-foot diameter tires on it. Nah. I would encourage our listeners to go back and find those earlier episodes with Ray. I forget the episode number, but but just go back. We don't have that many episodes up right now. Just go back and find those, and you get a get a better picture of all these colonies. But uh, so, um, Rocky, help us help set the stage for La Perouse Bay, where it is. It's not the most southern of the of the snow goose colonies, but it's it's among those those southern uh, colonies. So just 
paint a picture for where it is and what it's like there. Okay, if you uh, sort of put in your mind's eye where Hudson Bay is, Hudson Bay makes a little bit of a jog east and west, going east out of Churchill, Manitoba, and then it cuts back south. And um, we're sort of on a little promontory that sticks out in Hudson Bay. There's some colonies south of that. There's a number of small ones that come and go. The main ones are at um, the McConnell River, which is a very long-term study for years and years, and also on Agamsky Island. And so those are the three primary ones. Uh, La Perouse Bay, and I think this might interest your, your readers, we actually started that. I uh, started working with Fred Cook there at the behest of Graham Cooch. And Graham is one of those old-timers that went and remember hearing Ray tell the story of how people like Soper and Graham Cooch and stuff used to go in by dog sled to their camps and work. They were involved in the original finding of the blue goose as, long, as well as the white goose. And one of the things that Graham had noticed was that the geese don't randomly mate. And there was a, a period of time where they were actually going to declare these. Well, they actually were declared two species for a while, and then they got fused into one species. It was primarily some work that I did with Fred to show that they were really the same species, but they don't mate randomly. So the initial stuff that we did at La Perouse Bay, and the reason we chose that colony, was it was small, it was manageable, and it had 30% blue phase geese. And with 30% blue phase geese, you would expect if they mated at random, then 42% of the mating should be mixed pairs. Um, actually, it was only about 20%. And we spent the first several years of the project trying to figure out how that worked, how the genetics worked. We worked out the, the genetics of the color dimorphism. We worked out that basically a little gosling gets imprinted on the color of its mom's breast. Uh, some blue geese are blue all the way down, so they have a blue breast, and that gosling's going to want a blue mate. Other ones have a blue mom, but her breast is white. They're going to want a white mate. And then white birds have a white mom, and they're going to want a white mate. And so we actually were able to show with some experiments where we actually dyed some captive geese pink that what was happening is a gosling chose for a mate something the color of mom's breast. So that was the first three or four years of the project, was working that out. At that point, Fred was concerned, as were a number of people, well, why do we have these two different color morphs, and is there a selective advantage to blues versus whites? And so probably the next five to ten years of the project was spent, again, using this smaller colony that we could literally find every nest, mark every bird, and then follow it through its lifetime to work out whether there are fitness differences between white geese and blue geese. And I published a series of papers on that. And I remember going to Ottawa to visit Graham once, who was just really mad at me because he was convinced that there was a fitness difference and that that's what maintained this color dimorphism, that maybe blues were superior in some environments and whites were superior in others. But what I did was, with a lot of data, showed that there are absolutely no fitness differences between the two color morphs. It's something that's maintained. Who knows why the two color morphs originally erupted, but it's pretty much maintained by this assortative mating system and some mistake making, some cross fostering from 
females laying their eggs in other birds' nests, so you wind up with a blue gosling in a white, white nest, and that little gosling thinks, wow, mom's white, I'm going to have a white mate. And then he goes to look for one, and he finds a white mate, and it goes, oh, nope, you're blue, I'm not mating with you. But geese being geese, ultimately they'll mate with somebody. And um, what's happened is different colonies across the Arctic have different uh, levels of dimorphism. The colony at Cape Henrietta Maria, which is south of us, is 70% blue. Gamsky Island is 90% blue. And as you move north, it becomes whiter except one section in Baffin that's got a lot of blue geese. And then as you move west towards where Ray works, towards McConnell, where Charlie McKinnis worked, and Dave Ankney worked, and then you move further west towards Ray's place, that was all white. And one of the things we had noticed is that <clears throat> originally the blue geese tended to nest uh, in the eastern part of the, of the south, over in Louisiana, and the white geese tended to nest over on the Texas side, and the dividing line was somewhere right around Katy, Texas, that area. And if you went west of there, you got mostly blue geese. And if you went east of there, you got mostly white geese. Well, they started mixing up when the thing that really set off the entire crisis, if you will, with snow geese was these birds were living in the coastal salt marshes, which we drained so we could build condos and golf courses and, and uh, shopping malls and stuff like that. And the geese are sort of going like, well, wait a minute. Um, now what are we going to eat? And they sort of started short-stopping a little bit in the rice prairies of western Louisiana and eastern Texas. And the blue geese started mating with the white geese, and the white geese started mixing in with the blue geese, and they started mixing together. And gradually, uh, we were able to show early on that, that the way snow geese sort of pick where they're going to go is a female tends to go back to the colony where she was hatched, and she takes with her whoever the guy she picked up in the south was. And so slowly, blue geese started moving west, and more white geese uh, started moving east, and the colonies were sort of slowly mixing up. Now, Ray is um, we gave all of our data to Ray, and Ray and one of his students are working on a paper that's trying to look at the newest story on that. And um, last time I talked to him, there are some new dimensions to it, but I don't know what that final story is. It seems that there's right now a shift where a lot of these guys are moving to the east for um, nesting, and a lot of them are sort of migrating a little bit further west to take advantage of all of the lentils and stuff like that being grown in Saskatchewan. So the blues and the whites have started, you know, sort of mixed up a whole lot more. And then the Ross geese got involved. We now have a lot of Ross geese nesting at La Perouse Bay where they very openly hybridize with the snow geese. So it's gotten to the point where quite often my students will say at banding, like, hey, is this a Ross goose or is this a, a snow goose? And I look at it and I say, the best answer is it's a goose. I'm not sure anymore because you can tell an F1 hybrid where mom was one was a Ross goose, for example, and dad was a snow goose. You can tell that bird. But if you have a hybrid that then mates with something, it gets increasingly difficult to tell what it is. So I've sort of been fomenting that we merge those. Um, Ray is of a different mind because he's still got a lot of pure Ross geese breeding at Queen Maud Gulf. As you move further east, they tend to mix up more and more and more. So we'll see where that goes. 
Now, Rocky, are you are you saying that given all that hybridization, you think we may be at some point in the future getting to a point where we just have a snow goose, or, or, or maybe a, what would you what would the proposal be? Just to subsume the Ross goose under the lesser snow? Yep, I would just call them all light geese, <clears throat> even though there's a blue phase, because it's gotten to a point where it's really difficult for the enforcement guys. I've actually gone to our collection at the museum where we've got snow geese and Ross geese that have been collected ever since the, I guess, the late 1800s. And for a while in those series, you can tell a very distinct difference between a Ross goose and a snow goose. But it's becoming increasingly difficult to do it. So if we wind up with a situation like they were in in Canada right after the conservation order came in, where the conservation order only applied to snow geese, uh, the enforcement guys were having a dickens of a time because you get a guy and he's got a goose and you go like, well, let's see. And I've sent them pictures and said, here you go. Here's a pure, pure Ross goose on the left and there's a pure snow goose on the right. And all these things in the middle are somewhere in the middle. So if a guy were to shoot one of those, uh, can you really arrest him? Because he didn't really harvest a Ross goose. He harvested something that had a little Ross goose in it. So I think that at some point we're going to reach a – just a management perspective or an enforcement perspective where it makes more sense just to fuse them. Whenever you went through that, that story there, you got into the blue and the, the white, uh, white phase of, of the snow goose. And uh, that was a topic I didn't expect us to, to, to discuss, but I'm glad we did because that's, that's always a very popular question. A lot of people still think it's two different species of goose. You know, hopefully we, hopefully we've made some progress in in educating people on that. But um, are you seeing a level of hybridization with the greater snow geese and and lessers and rosses as as well? My understanding from Gilles Gauthier and José Lefebvre is that there is certainly some hybridization of of uh, snow geese and and lesser snow geese and greater snow geese, um, as I heard Ray say in his interview with you guys, <clears throat> when you get a pure greater snow goose, which we periodically get at the colony, um, it's, it's a lot taller. You can tell it. Um, or you pick it up, it's a lot heavier. But again, there are birds that, that both Gilles and Jose have told me, it's really hard to tell exactly what it is. So I think they're geese. Geese being geese, there's a um, propensity to mate, and if you can't find the one you want, then mate with the one you got. Sounds like a Stephen Stills song. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so Rocky, this is Tom, and it's really great to talk to you. Um, I remember in the mid-'80s as a graduate student, and I, Guy Baldessari was my advisor, and the one thing Guy was really good about is making us read, and he just encouraged us to read, and I can remember reading many, many papers by Rockwell, Cook, et al., and it was just really great to talk to you. And so do you think with these, and this is a pretty interesting topic, with with this gradation in size, are we potentially in a historical reference point looking at groups of birds that maybe were geographically isolated on their way to speciation? or And now they're, in almost all cases, their populations have increased and their ranges are starting to overlap. And the, the, at least the geographical isolation appears that maybe it's breaking down and they're maybe not solid behavioral factors that isolate them. And so we're starting to see more and more hybridization. Yeah, and I think that for the snow geese, what was happening is <clears throat> the real isolating mechanism was in the winter uh, where the blue geese were tending to go over to, towards Louisiana and the white geese were tending to go towards Texas. 
And once we drained those coastal marshes and the blues and the whites started mixing up in the rice prairies, then all bets were off. I think had we not drained those marshes, we might well have wound up with geographic isolation and blues becoming a species, you know, that you could actually refer to as a separate species because they didn't mate with the whites. And and same with the converse. But once we broke down that that um, uh, isolating mechanism in the wintering in the wintering grounds, and the blues and whites have mixed together, and now, I mean, we're we're even getting to a point where, um, if I had the research funds and the student that was interested in doing it, I think we we're going to need to revisit the whole genetic basis for it because we used to have a nice system where we could classify birds on a scale of one, which is a pure white, and six, which is a pure blue, and we had one through six classification and you could nail the bird into one of those six without any trouble and now we're getting birds that have blue around the neck and blue around the 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 vent but a white belly and we have birds that have um you know almost every conceivable combination and i think what that reflects is that the genetic system that was originally developing which is probably several different genetic loci is breaking down which is what you would expect with a lot of hybridization and so it's mixing up more and more and more so i i don't think there's any chance that they're going to revert to two separate species and i think that the same thing is probably going to happen with the ross geese my understanding from talking to ray and other folks that work with the rosses is it used to be really rare to see Ross geese in the Mississippi Flyway. Um, now it's very common. In fact, you get you get Ross geese in the Atlantic Flyway, sometimes in the wintertime. So I think the Ross geese are spreading over this direction, and those two groups are hybridizing more and more. Yeah, there's not any doubt about that. I've been working in mostly wintering areas, Mississippi Valley and Gulf Coast, for most of my career. When I first started in about 1991, it was really, really rare to see a Ross's goose in, even in coastal Texas. And, you know, kind of rare to see white fronts this far in Mississippi and Arkansas. And when you talked about the breakdown of that geographic isolation mechanism on the Gulf Coast, it subsequently has broken down even further because the number of birds, the number of snow geese in particular wintering on the Gulf Coast has really declined. And now in the Mississippi Valley, say from you know Arkansas up into Missouri over into Mississippi, we have what I would characterize, because I, I don't know how to count them, acres of white slash blue geese intermixed with Ross geese. And so the whole thing is in a beaker kind of an experiment. And I guess maybe that's what you all are starting to see up there with these various intergradations of plumage and all those sorts of things that you know ultimately we're going to have a big mix of potentially at least a, a single complex species like geese yeah yeah i can remember uh, i think it was 1970 or 71 fred sent me down to spend i got to spend two weeks with johnny lynch in louisiana and two weeks with charlie stutzenbecker in texas so i could learn about the wintering waterfowl biology of snow geese from two of the grand masters and i remember going out with john to a hunt club in louisiana and the guys were shooting snow geese and most everything they were shooting is a blue goose and this white goose came in and the old boy that shot it boy he went charging out and beat his dog to the bird so that he could, <laughs> and he did a happy dance when he got back because that was really a rare goose for louisiana in that particular point in time 
And um, now I understand, well, the last time I was down there with Robert Helm, before he passed away, uh, white geese were pretty common, and it wasn't a big deal for guys to get one of those. Yeah, they're all they're all intermixed and all a com- common, and it's, you know, any particular flock. Sometimes flocks are a little bit loaded one way or the other, but I think that's pretty random. feels pretty random anyway. Or anymore it is, and I think they've, yeah. they've mixed up, and I think that's probably a good thing. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Rocky, you've alluded to it, and Tom has alluded to it also, the, um, the, the, the growth of light goose populations in North America. That's a, that's a topic that I suspect most, or if not all, of our members, and certainly hunters, are going to be well aware of. La Perouse Bay uh, is one of the colonies where that, that phenomenon, I, my impression is that's one of the colonies where it was studied most intensively. I don't know if that was where it was noticed first but obviously having been doing work there for over 50 years you would have uh, probably had among the longest records of of data collection on on population size population growth uh, was la perouse bay really where where that uh, that issue began to emerge yeah we were and it's and it's because of again as ray mentioned in his it's because of a long term database we've been monitoring it after fred and i worked on the the genetics and then the fitness differences um, those were Fred's interests, and then I became much more interested in the population dynamics and then in the ecology of it. And what we started noticing in the early 80s was the amazing growth rate of the population. I estimated it back then using data we had on survival and on reproductive success to be around 5 to 6% a year, which as in terms of population dynamics, that's sort of an astronomical growth rate. It's one that I always – tease people when I give presentations, I really wish my retirement account had grown at 6% a year. <laughs> yep. um, but the snow geese started doing that, and we noticed it 
and we had two problems with La Perouse Bay and the whole Cape Churchill Peninsula. One was the growth of the colony that we had, and it went from 2,500 pairs when I first started there to the last estimate that Ken Abraham and I made about 10 years ago where we used a helicopter transect survey was we were up to 75,000 pairs. And that's, that's a phenomenal growth rate. The other problem is, and the reason we started noticing the damage first at La Perouse Bay before anyone else did, is we have three to four million snow geese that don't nest at La Perouse Bay that stage along the coast of what is now Wapas National Park. And we were able to see the damage happening, in great part because I was really fortunate in having a very gifted ecologist, the late Bob Jeffries from University of Toronto, who was really interested in the graminoids and all of the vegetation. And he sort of viewed geese as lawnmowers. And I viewed geese as the thing I was interested in. And as far as I was concerned, the plants were just goose food. And after we worked together for three or four years, we realized that what we really had was a program in community ecology. And what we were noticing is that initially, the snow geese and the, the vegetation at La Perouse Bay were in a very nice equilibrium. The geese ate the grass, and as anybody that's got a lawn that knows, the more you mow it, the more productivity you get from the grass because it doesn't self-shade and so on and so forth. And the geese grind up. They extract about 30% of the nutrients and poop the rest of it out as a really nice, solubilizable, if that's the right word, uh, fertilizer that goes back into the soil. Blue-green algae can get into the soil where they peck it out a little bit and charge, recharge the soil with nitrogen. And it was a really nice balanced system, which was what Bob and his students studied for quite a few years at LPB. And those were some of the mechanistic studies that we did that really required that we be able to control the whole system and be able to monitor the whole population. And we noticed, I would say, in the mid-'80s that he came in to me one morning, I'd made coffee, and he said, Squire, something's wrong. And I said, what? And he said, the graminoids are no longer recovering. And we had reached sort of a tipping point where the geese had, had sort of grubbed them down and shoot pulled them down to a point. Graminoids are unique, and they're really adapted for snow geese <clears throat> because they're a basal meristematic plant, which means that the growing point of a grass is right at the base, just barely above the soil level. Well, because they had nibbled it down so far, they were now starting to pull those out. And so you were losing the meristematic tissue, which means that the graminoids can't recover. And we were noticing increasing uh, portions of the swords that used to be along the coast were not coming back. We're just becoming denuded. And what was happening then was the geese were moving further afield, further up the coast and down the coast, you know, but still staying in the coastal marshes. And then what we noticed in the middle to late 80s, I'd say probably 86, 87, something like that, there's sort of a fringe, if you will, that we refer to as a supratidal marsh of higher willows and birch, I would say maybe half a kilometer inland from La Perouse Bay. It's sort of as a demarcation line, and interior to that, the land mass goes down again, and you have freshwater marshes. Freshwater marshes have larger, tougher graminoids that the snow geese tended not to not feed on because they like these little 
tiny salt marsh plants because they were much more digestible, and that's where they had always eaten. We noticed that they sort of jumped over that willow line, and we're actually now nesting and using these freshwater marshes. Once they jumped that line, what was becoming a limited uh, summer feeding habitat for them became a near-infinite habitat. There are millions of acres of these um, interior marshes along the Hudson Bay lowlands for these geese to feed in. And the geese started feeding in those and the population just started growing more and more and more. Now in the coastal salt marsh, because it's very saline soil and when they would denude it, you would get salt percolating to the top. And again, Bob came in one morning and was sharing with me what he and his students had found the day before. They found that some of the soil within a half mile of, of La Perouse Bay that used to support these graminoids, which liked a certain amount of salt in the soil. The soil was now three to five times seawater, which is pretty darn salty. And the only plant that was coming back in is a little red thing called Salicornia, which is a halophile, which is pretty well useless. Nothing eats it. And uh, that's the only thing that can grow there. On the interior parts, when they were grubbing that out and shoot pulling all of these larger graminoids out, that was being replaced by mosses, which again, the snow geese can't feed on. So people were saying, this was about the time Bob and I sounded the alarm that there's some problem. And initially, Ray wasn't noticing the damage at Queen Maud Gulf, and Gilles wasn't noticing the damage at Bylot Island. But that's because they didn't have these extra millions of geese that just migrate through in the spring, eat everything they can, and then fly further north. So we started seeing that the damage at La Perouse Bay, at uh, Cape Henrietta Maria, and at Agamsky Island, long before anyone else did, simply because everybody in the mid-continent flew through there and stopped off to have lunch on their way north. So we had a lot of damage by a lot of migrants that were exporting nutrients further north. And we started noticing that the geese were thing, damaging things further and further inland. And the latest surveys that we've done, we have snow geese nesting and foraging up to 20 miles inland. They're now beginning to use um, open boreal forest ponds, the edges of which are fring, uh, fringed with Carex aquatilis, which is one of the larger graminoids, and also Eriophorum or cotton grass. And the geese are now into those marshes as well. So the kind of damage that we started seeing in the late 80s has now sort of moved its way up the coast. And Ray is now seeing damage. Gilles is seeing damage. They have damage in the Great Plains of the Kukjuak. They have damage in the McConnell River. They have damage on Southampton Island. Um, so that's sort of the evolution of that. So we've been fighting this problem, and we sort of sounded the alarm, and fortunately, I think, for everybody, and Ray gave him correct credit, and I want to echo that, Dave Ankney finally saw what we were doing, and Dave Ankney is the kind of man that takes poison pen to paper very quickly, and he wrote a very powerful letter to the Central Flyway, which adopted his proposition, shared it with the Mississippi Flyway, that it's about time something has to be done. I remember Dave and I worked on a paper together. It's anytime you have two scientists in a room and you ask a question, you're going to get at least three answers. And Dave and I certainly were known for going toe-to-toe -to -toe over things. And I remember one time at a Central Flyway meeting, Mike Johnson from North Dakota had a copy of the paper that I'd given him, and I brought copies for all the guys at the Central Flyway Tech Committee. And Mike said, gentlemen, 
everybody should be scared because Rockwell and Ankeny agree on something. And that is that this is a problem and we need to deal with it. And Dave is the one that sound, sounded the alarm. He published the paper that was pivotal in general wildlife management that really got the ball rolling. And it, the ball was picked up by another very important guy and player in this. Tom, you mentioned some of the grand old men of this whole thing. That, that grand old guy is still with us, and that's Bruce Bat. And Bruce picked this up, and he came up to visit. And then he said, oh, my God, we got to film this. And I'm sure you're aware of the film that, that he – uh, had Ducks Unlimited put together, and they marketed it, and they showed it, and they really sounded the alarm. And Bruce really got this whole thing moving with getting the management pl- plan started. Uh, that was a very difficult time. Um, Mike Johnson and I, along with Bruce, were sent out by Paul Schmidt to do a lot of dog and pony shows all across the Mississippi and Central Flyway states. Uh, fighting with people from the Humane Society about whether or not we should do this or not do that, and so on and so forth. And I know there were several times when I engaged them when I was supposed to just just stick to the biology line, Rocky. And Paul Schmidt said, just do that. And I said, no, I'm going to take them on. And I know there was one particular exchange where it got very heated and got very philosophical. And I, I think that Paul almost had a heart attack. Um, and after we were done and we had this sort of little recap afterwards, Bruce looked at him and said, you know, you should just, I told you, you can let him go. He knows what he's doing. He'll put these people in their place. And we got the job done. The sad thing is that I think we missed the mark. Uh, Dave and I had calculated how many geese need to be removed in order to control the population. But unfortunately, the estimates we had of the population size, and Ray spoke to this in his interview, we were unaware of how many snow geese there actually were, in part because there are snow geese nesting in places that we haven't found yet. Jose Lafebvre told me that she's actually seen snow geese up on Axel. Uh, which is a really northern island in the Canadian archipelago. There are snow geese on northern parts of, of western Greenland. There are lots of these birds that we're unaware of where they all are. So the estimates that we made were based on an underestimate of what the population was. And so the recommendations that we had for how many birds needed to be harvested harvested turns out to be a number that we've never completely attained. So if you harvest at a certain rate with a certain number of birds from a population, you can control it if you've got the right number. But if the population is 10 times what you thought it was, and you can't even reach the number that were necessary to control the population with a tenth of what you thought it was, then the number you're harvesting is not going to be sufficient to do the job. And I think that I was very fortunate to have a young guy named Dave Coons, who's at University of Colorado right now, get involved with this. And the, the newest paper that he and his, his partner, Lise Aubrey, and I wrote shows that we have never been able to reach the mark that is necessary, and we are still under harvesting. So I'm not sure what the population is doing right now. There are some other things that hopefully we can get into that Ray and I have both observed are tending to work a little bit to control the population that's non-hunting. But 
I still think this population is growing. And while I was hopeful that we could control it with hunter harvest, I am not convinced that that's been able, well, I know that it's not been able to do the job thus far, whether or not it can do the job in the future with some of these extra factors that we have affecting snow geese right now, I really don't know. We should definitely talk about those extra factors, but I have a question. So given where the population is, or at least where folks think it is right now, are you still seeing the degradation and or conversion of those really sensitive habitats or are the birds mostly like those staging birds you talked about have they also moved to inland wetlands or are they still pounding yeah the staging birds are in inland inland wetlands as well Um, unfortunately in the region that i am you know there's only so much money helicopter flights are really expensive Helicopter flights early in the season when you're just getting breakup in the boreal forest regions are really dangerous because if you come down in 30-foot spruce trees in partly melted habitat, you're in a world of trouble. And so we can do some of those surveys, and as we move further and further inland, we find that every time we go over one of these slightly melted tundra ponds or boreal forest ponds, you literally have thousands and thousands of snow geese coming up at you. It usually freaks the pilot out because they have to pull up and rock it up to 1,500 feet so that you don't get too many geese hitting the bottom of the helicopter. Um, there's just lots and lots of snow geese, and they're using those areas. So I'm not sure where it's going to end. Hmm. So then there's also impacts, you know, it's just not about the geese. Arctic being what it is, there are lots of other, well, lots of other species of wildlife, but lots of other species of migratory birds that use a lot of the same habitats. And so have you witnessed over the course of these decades declines in some other species up there, some of the shorebirds or some of the other birds that nest up there? Yeah, we've we've done a lot of extensive work on that. Uh, there's quite a few shorebird species. Semi-palmated sandpipers are one that come to mind. Semi-palmated plovers, um, stilt sandpipers, and things like that. Um, among the other waterfowl, one of the ones that has really suffered a decline um, are shovelers. Now, I know a lot of birds are declining for a whole lot of reasons. And it's always hard to nail down exactly what the final causality is. But we do know from studies that we've done with some of our students, a lot of the tundra ponds no longer support the um, populations of of critters that things like um, shovelers want to eat. So the forage for the shoveler seems to have dwindled. Uh, The forage for um, long-tailed ducks has dwindled. So we've had an effect on a number of species like that. We've had a lot of effect on another species that we studied when we were first trying to get together the management program. Uh, We were approached by Canadian Wildlife Service and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at a very funny meeting in some senses. Well, we have to be able to show that there's an impact of snow geese on other species. And Bob Jeffries stood up. Bob was a very proper British gentleman. And he looked at, I can't remember the name of the fellow from Fish and Wildlife Service that was tasked with, with writing the report, who said, we need to show that it's affecting other species. And Bob stood up and said, well, you do know that plants are species. <laughs> and we've shown that they're affecting plants. And he said, 
yeah, okay, fine, I'm sorry. We need some vertebrate species <laughs> to show that are being affected. So what I did was instead of picking something that was really delicate, we had some historical data from Pat Weatherhead who had looked at savanna sparrows nesting in the area. Now, savanna sparrow, as you guys probably know, is one of the hardiest little sparrows on the planet. They can make a living in shopping malls. And I figured we've got a lot of them nesting here. If we can show that savanna sparrows are being impacted because their habitat is being degraded, then heavens knows what's happening to more delicate species. So we showed that there was a 60-some percent reduction in nesting savanna sparrows in the La Perouse Bay region where snow geese were nesting. And fortunately, we had a couple of control areas where the snow geese didn't nest. Savannah sparrow numbers there were right up where they had been 20 years before. But the savannah sparrow numbers in the areas where the snow geese were nesting and, and foraging were down 60 to 70 percent. So to me, that, that's better than a canary in a coal mine because that's a species that normally can survive anything. And my argument for the that particular thing that went in to, to get the conservation order passed was that here's a vertebrate species that's being grotesquely impacted by snow geese, and it's one that you certainly wouldn't expect to be impacted. Rocky, one of the, um, one of the important, important things that has contributed to this population growth uh, is distant, occurs distant from the breeding grounds. And I think we might have touched on that, but just uh, to give it proper attention, speak a little bit to the fuel, what really fueled this explosive population growth of, of snow geese? Because it wasn't just their ability to expand into those inland marshes, uh, distant, more distant from the, from the coastal salt marsh up there, was it? No, I think that, again, the, the biggest mistake, if you will, is go back down to the Gulf Coast where these guys used to live on Spartina Marsh. And there was a, they were winter, um, winter food habitat limited. Um, there was only so much Spartina marsh, and that's what they ate. Well, we chased them out of there because we drained it, and they discovered the rice prairies, and they started eating rice. And then they went, wow, oh, let's move a little bit further north, and they ran into canola. They ran into wheat. They went and ran into corn. They ran into all these other, other wonderful things that they could eat. And um, for a snow goose in the winter or in the fall and the wintertime, a snow goose needs a food source and they need some water. They particularly like water because they like standing in it. And one of the one of the, my, my prized pictures, a man named Irv Klaus uh, from Iowa sent me, was pictures of snow geese out foraging in um, cornfield, which had been sheller, you know, sheller harvested shellar picker harvested. And what they were using for water were the cooling ponds of nuclear power plants. So they have warm water to stand in, an unbelievable amount of the best agricultural products the United States was able to grow to feed on. And that is, is a lot of what fueled it. That and the fact that the only real uh, cap on snow goose, the only a real top-down controller on them in the in the winter time, rather than food, which is a bottom-up control, is hunter harvest. Well, I mean, I still like to hunt, but I can't get out as much as I used to. I don't have a place here in the east to do it very much, and even in the Midwest, it's very difficult. And the guys that are out there doing the hunting, who are doing the best job they can, are still not able to harvest enough geese. 
And so the geese got away from us, fueled in part by the best agriculture we could grow and providing them with a water source further and further north. So that instead of trying to winter along the Spartina marshes of Gulf Coastal Texas and Louisiana, they're now wintering all the way up into Nebraska and Iowa at times. And from a from a biology standpoint, what that translated into, tell me if I have this right, when they had this superabundance of food, primarily in the form of the, the agricultural grains that you spoke of, they're able to get super fat and they're able to you – have, you have this abundance of food that's able to support this very large population of snow geese. They all get fat. They all go back to the breeding ground in excellent condition. They're able to crank out maximum number of eggs. They have higher survival because of their better body condition. And that's, that's the way we saw that population growth uh, occur at such an exponential fashion. Right, and that's that's a big part of it. The one other part for, especially for us in the Hudson Bay Lowlands, is those geese get in there in the spring, and when they're using the freshwater marshes, there's some of the graminoids there that are really very tasty, very nutritious, and they're doing a lot of foraging on that. And we've shown that the birds at Leperus Bay, working with Keith Hobson, and using stable isotopes, we've shown that our birds put on a lot of their last bits of body mass once they get north. So the birds are now feeding all the way from where they start migrating north. I've had pictures sent to me by by fellows in South Dakota and North Dakota of snow geese that have been out foraging in the springtime that are literally too fat to fly. And they, they sort of get left behind when the flock goes and they leave a few days later because they literally are too heavy for wing loading and they can't get their bulk off the ground. So they're going up fatter and fatter, and they're also foraging the whole way along, and they're arriving in really great shape. Yeah, I, I know we're going to have to wrap this this particular episode up here shortly, but just for our listeners' sake, snow geese have a pretty unique adaptation, and I think it was Dave Antony and McIns who initially worked this out. But what we think they're doing is they're using all these grains to fatten up, and then they fly north with that fat. Now, you may not think about it this way, but when they get to the Arctic, things haven't really kicked off yet in terms of production, although what I'm hearing you say is maybe they're gaining a little bit of nutrients up there now. So all the fat goes into egg production. And so if you did not have all those carbohydrate food sources and you were dependent upon, let's just say, historical native prairie and Spartina marsh, that is where birds really struggled, and now that's been unleashed. There is no limit to the available carbohydrates that these birds can pack on to the point of what you're saying is some of them pack it on so heavily they can't fly, which makes me think that maybe that might, might be adaptive if there's an eagle around, but we'll see. Um, so they get there, and they, they put all of this, the females put all of that fat into egg production. They use a lot of their internal protein sources for the albumin, part of the production and maybe glean a little bit of that externally up there from what you're what you're saying so that's kind of what unleashed this this tremendous growth is this tremendous landscape change combined with the bird who who through adaptations sorted out how to best use it and lo and behold we got from a million snow geese to upwards of 16 or 20 million or more now Exactly. I think another thing that's contributing to this is there's no question that we're having uh, earlier springs, warmer springs. We're having earlier green up of the, the graminoids. So once they get to the north, 
it used to be when they first got there, it was pretty harsh, even at La Perouse Bay. But now they seldom have to wait more than two or three days before there's vegetation that they can forage on. And as I understand it, as you move further north, that's happening again. Because I have friends in places like Arviat and stuff like that that I'm in communication with all the time who are telling me that, yeah, the snow geese are here, you know, two weeks earlier than normal, and they're out here foraging, and they're feeding, and they're eating everything in sight. So I think that the uh, climate change is also working to the advantage of these birds. And one of the things to keep in mind is, um, snow geese are one of the most opportunistic species that you're ever going to run into, and I think that's why they've been so successful. They're not fussy. Back in the 70s, they wanted Spartina marsh, but once they jumped out of the Spartina marsh and discovered the rice prairies, uh, all bets were off. They're going like, wow, that's pretty good. That's like taking a, a teenager that was normally going to eat this one particular thing and put them into a mall with some sort of a smorgasbord, and they're going like, wow, look at all this food. And that's, that's what they're doing. They're just taking advantage of everything. Rocky, this has been a fantastic synthesis of of that issue uh we've touched on pretty much all the topics that i think we wanted to right now in this episode you've alluded to uh, a few of the other topics that i believe we want to have you back on to discuss uh such as sort of the long-term effects of this damage sort of where are we now i know you've been doing some experiments you have some exposure experiments uh up there and some regeneration experiments we want to have you back on to discuss that as well as some of the other neat observations that you've that you've obtained over the 50 plus years of, of working in such a cool environment environment. Uh, I, I, as I go back and listen to this podcast, I know I'm going to find things that I wish I would have followed up on. And um, but there's a lot to unpack here. And we appreciate you introducing all these topics. And, and uh, even beyond this next episode that we're going to have you on, I'm sure we'll have you on uh, at some subsequent time to delve uh, into much greater depth uh, into some of the other topics. I will, I will back up a little bit here and correct something that we said uh, midway through because he's a great friend of all of us and we want to make sure we give due credit to where he is. Dave Coons at Colorado State, not University of Colorado. So uh, we'll just make sure we keep us all out of trouble in that regard. Right, absolutely. He's, he's a splendid young scientist. I've, I felt very gifted. I was on his Ph.D. committee when he was doing his Ph.D. with Barry Grant at Auburn and have had a lot of fun with Dave and still do. He's a, a really smart young guy that's brought some mathematical skills to bear on, on the world of population dynamics that we really needed. Thank you so much for your time, Rocky. Um, we will we'll, we'll be back in touch with you and, and get you on another episode. Okay, cool. Good deal. Thanks, Rocky. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. We extend special thanks to our special guest for this episode, Dr. Rocky Rockwell with the American Museum of Natural History in New York. We also thank our in-house special guest, our chief scientist, Dr. Tom Mormon. We thank, as always, our producer, Clay Baird, who gets these podcasts out to you, our listeners. Uh, to you, our listeners, we thank you for sharing your time and spending your time with us on this podcast. And most importantly, as always, we thank you for your passion and commitment to waterfowl and wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog 
are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. 